This is T from Dragged in Sunlight. You're listening to Death to All But Metal podcast. Hello listeners, this is Gary Grimm, and you're listening to Death Talk by Metal. I'm here with T from Dragged Into Sunlight. Thank you for joining me today. Hey Gary. Uh, so it's Dragged Into Sunlight's uh, first time in Australia. How are you finding it so far? How was Dark Mofo? How was Brisbane last night? Um, Brisbane last night was really good. Full show. Um, supremely loud. Australia's been great. Dark Mofo was insane. Um, just massive festival, massive PA system. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of effort gone into it. Australia's been great so far. All the shows have been well received. There's a lot of flying involved, a lot of jet lag involved. But yeah, it's been a great first time over. Great, great. Uh, so I've, I read an early interview that uh, Dragged in the Sunlight never intended to do many live shows, but uh, you've now played a few gigs and alongside some pretty big influences such as Mayhem or Topsy, to name but a couple. So what changed there? Was it a conscious decision by the band to start playing live more or did it occur naturally? I think overall, when we first started out, you know, it was a, a UK scene. Um, we thought, you know, we'll do a handful of shows in the UK, see how it goes. Um, it was the last band for everyone involved. So we thought, you know, play a few shows, see see what the, the reception's like, um, see how much we enjoy doing it, I think. And then once we realized we thoroughly enjoyed doing it, um, and once we realised other people thoroughly enjoyed watching us do, you know, the sort of the, the live shows, we just decided to do more. And I think that combined with realising the world's quite a big place and thinking, you know, let's just um, tour as, you know, so if we get the right offer, then then let's just tour. So we started with small weekenders of two, three days, and we didn't do a lot. You know, we sort of did. Uh, three days in a year and then we do a the following year we do another three days and then maybe do six days and then we just built up and you know eventually a band like mayhem comes along and you say well you know these guys are uh, a massive influence on extreme music and the, the type of music director sunlight makes so um you kind of think well that's never going to happen again so they, they've asked us to do 80 shows and we we did it and that was the most shows we've, we've ever done in a row now i'm gonna make a habit of playing you know, every year or touring all the time. Um, but there are certain bands that if they say to us, you know, we need you for 200 shows, we will do it because they're a massive influence on, on what we do. And not just what we do, not the sound, not just the sound, but, um, you know, just us as, us as people. Um, and, you know, that, that's, they've sort of shaped shaped the people we've, we've grown into because we grew up listening to their music. So and a band like Mayhem and Autopsy, you know, the, the, those bands are really influential. Are there any influential bands that you'd like to tour with that you that you haven't yet? It's it's difficult to to pick a uh, you know not a band that we haven't toured with because you know or played with you know so we've played with the likes of Autopsy, Mayhem, Immortal. Wow. Um, God, the list is is literally endless. Um, I think a band that I'd I'd really like to tour with is probably Obituary, and we actually had to turn down that tour um, a year ago. Um, just because there wasn't enough space for for everyone um, to to go on the tour, and uh, that's something you know we we always feel quite strongly about. You know, as a unit, we you know we we tour as sort of a family. 
you know, we don't we don't all sort of, you know, we're not going to leave people behind. We're not, you know, it's either it's all of us or it's it's not, you know. Sure. Um, and there was enough sta space on that tour for for every member. Um, so we thought, well, you know, let's uh, let's not do it. So it's unfortunate because the guys from Obituary are, are great guys, um, really accommodating, but they just couldn't make it work. Um, so they're probably a band that you know I'd really like to tour with one day. Um, the other bands, you know, it's it's a lot of them we've played with or toured with, um, the likes of you know Portal, Morbid Angel. Um, Absu, um, pretty much. God, we've played so many festivals over the over the last decade now. Um, I've been pretty keen to check out the bands that obviously influenced me growing up and things, and I've seen sort of bands that you know I would never have access to or never, you know, I certainly wouldn't get to meet them, you know, and that, that's something which is very unique, you know, meeting Attila Cesar and sort of spending eighty days with Attila is, you know, is, is sort of look. You just learn as much as as possible about him, and you know, you don't. You, it's a little bit overwhelming meeting someone that that's quite, you know, is is that sort of important to you know your taste in music i mean when uh, for example you look at the beast of attila cesar which was a cd which came out on cacophonous records and probably came off came out in about 2008 i think or maybe a bit earlier maybe a bit earlier maybe 2005 something like that um and it's got all of attila's recordings on and that was uh, that was one of my favorite records um it didn't actually have too much too much work from mayhem i don't think on um but it did have his other bands like abarim were on there um tormentor on there and it was like a collection of his best of, and, and uh, a friend in the UK actually put it out at the time. You know, and I remembered listening to that, so I've got that going through my head at the same time, you know, 10 years later, I'm, I'm in the same room as the guy, you know, sharing a joint, um, <laughs> hanging out, and just like, you know, that's that's a pretty overwhelming experience, but it's also very humbling to you know, to, to know that, uh, sort of, well, he's just, a, you know, he's a normal, a normal guy, you know, he's just, a, a, you know, exceptionally dedicated to what he does, exceptionally talented at what he does. Um, but very genuine, you know, exceptionally genuine, to be honest. That's um, um, and that's what I found with a lot of the bands, Autopsy, Obituary, um, Mayhem. They're all authentic, genuine, two hundred percent dedicated to what they do. Um, and I think that is mirrored in Dragged in Sunlight, and it always has been from day one. Um, so I think it's called almost come full circle now, because we've met these these sort of musicians and bands who've influenced us, and you kind of think, well, you know. We, we knew that they were going to be authentic, genuine people. We're authentic, genuine people. And now we're on tour with, you know, those type of bands. Um, so it's come full circle. It just proved a point, really, that those bands that we grew up listening to are not only exceptional musicians, but they're great people as well. Great, great. Br bringing it back to your live show, during your performances, the bands, besides the drummer, uh, has their backs to the audience. Yeah. Uh, is this a way of conveying a message to the audience or is it a way of further preserving the anonymity of the band in order to keep the focus on the music or is it both or is it neither it's, uh, i mean it's certainly not i think it i think it sends a, a message to the audience it sends a, a message that we're not here to talk you know we don't want to sort of be you know it's not a, a show where you encourage your fans to put their horns up in the air or whichever or you know scream the next song in you know your sort of favorite metal voice or something for me that is just not what I want out of an extreme metal show. I, I really just want to go there and listen to crushing music. And I think that's something I got from a lot of noise shows. You know, I used to go to a lot of harsh noise shows. You go to the likes of Vomia, for example. I remember I remember walking into my first Vomia show um, and everyone had bin bags over their heads. Um, and I thought, whoa, this is messed up. You know, this is, uh, yeah, it's crazy. No words. It was just harsh noise going off for probably about 45 minutes to, to 50 minutes. And um, yeah, I think it's a. Uh, an interesting one because I think dragged um, sunlight has a you know has a similar a similar approach. It's sending it sends the message of 
um, hostility um, to the audience in a way. I don't think that's deliberate. I mean, but if you turn your back on anyone, it's almost hostility. You know, so if they if they don't, as long as they're not reflecting too much on that, and that depends on sort of the thickness of the skin, really. If they're offended by it, or they say, "Oh, I don't like it," you know, I wanted to see him interact with the audience. I wanted to see them, you know, encourage me to get on stage or something like that. Um, we, you know, we're just not about that. So. Um, I think uh, once you get over that hump of actually, yeah, you know, turning your back on someone can be seen as hostile, but actually that's just a norm and value in society. It's a, con it's a social construct. You know, if you turn your back on someone, it's a social construct that that is rude. It's a norm. So it's, it's a figment of your imagination. No, it's not actually rude. Um, someone said, hey, that's rude. And then that definition and connotation came to, you know, join with uh, turning your back on someone. So for, for us, actually, in the band, um, the message is, is not one of hostility. It's, you know, it's uh, sort of don't focus on us, focus on the music. Focus on sort of, I guess, drifting away and being consumed by the music, but sort of thinking about it, reflecting. And there's actually a message. Um, which I actually, I'll read this out to you because it's really, um, it sort of echoes that point, but it came in um, after the um, Tasmania show. And uh, when I read it, I actually thought, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's why I do this, you know, and it's... Uh, I guess it's tied quite closely to the the question, sort of turning you turning backs on audience, sort of what what purpose it serves. Um, yeah, so he, he messaged our uh, social media and he said, um, never usually do this, but here goes. Been experiencing a return of some depressive thinking recently that I had thought I had to overcome. Blah blah blah. I know, but just wanted to say I've been waiting eight years to finally experience you guys, and last night you you killed it, like a nuclear destination. That expression of chaos you guys put out up there gave me a reprieve from. For, for a night it felt really good it felt like I had some control over everything as I stared into the darkness then off the stage thanks for that guys thanks for that moment um, which I think uh, when, when someone sort of writes that to you you know it's a uh, that's that's the purpose served you know he sort of obviously he's watched what's going on on stage he's watched what we're going through and things and sort of putting ourselves through to create this sort of you know atmosphere and music um, and he's joined you know and he's he sort of it's uh, given him a reprieve from you know I'm not saying everyone has to have sort of a reprieve from depression or something but everyone has their issues um, so for an hour whilst you're trapped in that room, um, I'm watching, you know, four four individuals thrash themselves around the stage. Um, it's interesting, you know. studio releases uh, from Dragged Into Sunlight since the collaboration with Know Their Tongues on uh, NV or Negative Volume in uh, 2015. However, I read on your Facebook page that a lot of 2018 was spent in the studio and that you might be sharing some of the new music in 2019. And it seems like with each previous album, the band evolves and make makes some really bold and interesting uh, musical choices. Uh, what kind of direction would you say the band has gone with the new material? I'll say the, the interesting point there that you said is it evolved because I, I don't really see each of the releases we've done as an evolution of the previous sound. The way, we, the way we've always seen it is Drag to Sunlight is almost like a, a Hydra. Nine different heads, nine different sounds perhaps. But there's obviously a lot of, I mean, there's you know, a number of individuals involved now. It's almost a collective. There's a lot of different personalities in there. Um, every time we go towards a release, we have a very premeditated concept and idea of what that release is going to be like. Um, when we went in to, to do NV, um, we were listening to a lot of industrial stuff. Mm. Northern Tongues were a big influence on NV before we even decided to collaborate on the record, but um, bands like Godflesh were huge, you know, so they were a big influence for us on it. 
I guess bands like Ministry that we were listening to quite quite heavily. Um, I'd been reading a Ministry book at the time, so there's quite a, quite a, a lot of industrial influence going in. Widowmaker, on the other hand, was solely doom, a lot of post metal um, bands like you know Burning Witch came up, Pelican came up um, in discussion. You know when we're sort of saying, well, what do we want to create? So it was solely focused around Doom, and if someone had said in that conversation, oh, you know, actually, I think we should throw a bit of Golgoroth in there, we'd probably be like, no, that's, that's, for, a different, that's for a different record, you know? Um, so we're very sort of, I guess, when we come to do a record, it's, it's, focus, it's quite focused. We keep it diverse, but, you know, we're never going to just make it a complete mismatch. We have a very clear idea of what we're going to create. And when we went into Widowmaker, it was a 40-minute 40 track, one track. That was always the, the ambition, so it wasn't just a you know, sporadic thing. Um, and had a different set of influences. What you have with Hate for Mankind is a completely different sound, and it's a completely different sound from Widowmaker and MV. So when you look at MV, you've got Godflesh, you've got Ministry, you've got a lot of harsh noise in there, you've got all the tongues in there. Um, when you look at Widowmaker, you've got Burning Witch in there, Pelican, um, likes of Ramesses. Um, I guess, uh, I mean, all the time I was listening to a lot of St. Vitus, Palace of Skulls, I think it was, uh, Place of Skulls, sorry, um, that I was listened to. Um, really exploring sort of the doom wave and a lot of those influences carried over to, to Widowmaker whereas Hate for Mankind focuses on obituary, autopsy, incantation um, and then all your all your I guess you know raw black metal um, bands like Ostia as well as Zathor um, trying to think who else around the time would have would influenced us I mean no doubt Wolves in the Throne Room had an influence on us at the time um, so it's completely different influences each time now the new stuff um, it's back to that sound that we we had on hatred um, for for one well one one set of uh, music that we've been working on. Um, yeah, <laughs> sounds like we've got a bit of an industrial influence yeah. on the interview. Might do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so so we're so go, going back to sort of the the new stuff that we're working on. We've been working on. Um, a, a sort of similar sound to, to hatred in, in one one sort of area and then the um, next release we've been working on is, is more post metal so we're sort of going back to the likes of Isis, Pelican um, I guess stuff like Growing um, but it's, it's a lot more sort of uh, I guess I wouldn't say beautiful um, it's, it's just different it's more of a uh, it's a gentler approach the mix and master on on that recording that we've, we've just finished is, is actually quite harsh but the the influences behind it are um everything from you've got a lot of harsh noise and then you've got um sort of following that it's again one track this particular recording i'm referring to it's, it's 30 minutes so you've got sort of half is just half uh, harsh noise um and the rest of it sort of goes into bands like pelican isis growing um and then at the same time for the last I would say four years, five years, um, we've probably been writing monthly um, and, and we go into the studio and in really intense periods. So we do sort of four days at a time, then we do 10 days at a time and we just live on the studio floor, wake up every day at sort of 10 a.m., practice all day, pass out at 3 a.m., do the same thing the following day, same thing the following day, and we do that for 10 days now. After 95 days of that, um, we had an album we are happy with. Um, and those six six tracks are uh, more of a hatred sound. So we're working on those at the moment and just before we left for Australia, so we flew at um, 7 a.m. I think, something like that. We finished up in the studio probably at midnight on the 15th. Flew out on the, on the 16th. Then when we go back, we've probably got another couple of weeks, something like that, but we'll spend another couple of weeks on it. Um, and after that, hopefully we, we, we should be finished. 
actually wrote uh, a sort of ideology of, of what we wanted to create and where it was going to excel, where it was going to be different from hatred, where it was going to play on similar characteristics as hatred, um, and I guess sort of really sort of lock down our influences. Um, and having sort of racked up sort of almost just, just before we left for this trip, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really confident that it's, it has scratched that, that itch. Um, I remember in 2017, though, you know, we, we had those tracks in a more raw form. We actually played one of them live as just a, a small show and, um, yeah, just wasn't wasn't feeling it massively. So I thought, you know, we got off and I just thought, guys, you know, I'm, I'm not really feeling that. That, that isn't the one. Um, it sat just below hatred. It, it felt to me like it sat just below. Um, so obviously staying in the studio for the 90 days in, in 2018, um, God, it was soul destroying, absolute soul destroying. <laughs> it, you know, it, it broke us. Because, um, you know, there's no beds there, there's no food, you know, it's sort of like you're running off a microwave and a micro oven. Um, so an oven that, you know, can barely fit a full pizza in. <laughs> um, and you're just sort of making do with the basics and just focusing on your music. And it's so draining. You have sort of, you know, you're arguing 24-7 because you're trying to sort of, you know, explain things or get things right. There are hours where you're just sitting looking at the walls, just thinking, how are you going to unlock this, you know, this next part type thing. Um, but if you study something intentionally, uh, intensely enough, and you push it enough, um, I've always been a fan that if you put your mind, I've always been a fan of the, the approach that if you put your mind to something, you can do it. Um, I think that's what that's what we've done this time. So um, I think people will be interested to hear what we've created in the studio. Um, and I mean, to be honest, I don't really care if people like it or not. Um, what I care about is that it's ticked that box for me, um, and it's scratched the itch. You know, it's, it, it is more extreme. Uh, if, if I was to describe it, I would say it's like hate for mankind on steroids. Um, and conversely, with the um, noise stuff that we've been been working on, the more post metal stuff um, that was actually designed to be a follow up to Terminal Aggressor. Um, Terminal Aggressor was the first tape that we did in two thousand and eight. Um, so we decided to revisit that and do another uh, second half of it. We always meant to do the second half. It was just meant to be five years earlier. <laughs> um, so we wanted to do that as well. And, uh, you know, again, it's, it's scratched an itch because I always, my, my regret, I guess, with Terminal Aggressor, love, I love the record. Um, it was the production, you know, and uh, losing the master files. We, we actually lost the master files oh, for Terminal Aggressor. Really? So um, we could never improve the production. So I wanted to revisit it and to do something with uh, Terminal Aggressor 2 and, and make it sort of a, you know, a, a sort of more, um, I guess a more professional release, but also um, have the sound that we wanted Terminal Aggressor to have when we didn't have the budget to get it, you know, to give it that sound. Um, that's also been a, you know, a huge achievement. So it's been a, it's been a really busy year, to be honest. Uh, if we could go back to uh, Envy, just yep. for for a moment, uh, album seemed like a, a, kind of the perfect blend of all the elements that I enjoy from Hatred for Mankind and Widowmaker, but also all of the elements that I enjoy from Maurice's yep. uh, uh, various projects, of which there are many. What was it like working with Maurice making music, and was it hard to strike that that kind of balance? No, to be honest, I mean, Maurice, we met him in 2010, I think, in, in Holland. Um, I saw him playing with his, his band Adelating, um, which is a two-piece. I hadn't made the connection with Nor Their Tongues and Maurice's other work, and the fact he has got a, a, well, a fairly hefty body of work. Um, <laughs> the guy is 200% dedicated to making hideous sounds. Um, and after after we spent a bit of time together, we, uh, we just sort of talked about collaborating you know it's, it's happened with a few bands and um, we've never actually got as far as someone sending a recording saying you know do you 
together. Um, when Maurice and I started working together, um, which is a very natural relationship, you know, both, both of us sort of just uh, into very similar music, um, had very similar ideas. Um, I remember we started working on the track Visceral Repulsion um, and we sent our tracks to him so we recorded a lot of raw material, we sent it to Maurice, he sent it all back and like reversed it and sort of chopped it all up and it just sounded crazy um, and you know I guess when, when I see sort of that glimmer of craziness that whole sort of you know they're sort of I guess uh, it's quite attractive and you, know, you think where can this go you know this is what I guess this is what gets me going about music how, how extreme can this get. And I remember hearing the shriek in Visceral Repulsion, um, the really high-pitched one. And I just thought, Christ, that sounds demonic. You know, I want to <laughs> see where this is going. So we just kept on, you know, it got faster than the pace built up. And there's more sort of, um, I guess, files trying, you know, moving across sort of to Holland quicker. He's sending them back. We're re-recording bits. So he'd compose it, sort of put drum patterns together from various drum patterns that we'd given him. He'd join them all up, and then we'd re-record them all through. Um, I think a melting pot, so far as NV goes, is, is probably an understatement. Um, that that release is more butchered and crushed together and manipulated and twisted and pitch bent than anything I've ever heard, to be honest. Um, we're actually going to release the stems of it pretty soon, so people can make their own release from it, which is, is pretty interesting. It's something we've, we've got in mind because we want to see what other people do with the stems. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it a really good process, really natural. And Maurice is, is such a, a good a good friend of ours now. Um, he comes to every show. He's always welcome. Um, and hopefully one day we'll get to work uh, work together again. Excellent, oh, man. Uh, I'm a big fan of his work and and of you guys, of course. But uh, both of you together was amazing. Uh, also. Uh, that album was produced by uh, Justin Broderick from uh, yes, Godflesh. Uh, was he very hands-on in the process that you were just outlining, or was no, he more I mean, after the fact? He, Justin, Justin came on board. Um, so Justin came on board after the after the fact um, when it came to MV. He knew about it for years in advance, mm. and the only reason he knew about it was was mainly because I, I just kept on saying, you know, I was obsessed with Street Cleaner for years maybe three years in the lead up to NV, all I was obsessed with is, is Street Cleaner, you know, I, I thought it was just a fantastic album. Uh, people look at the artwork on Street Cleaner and say it's so simple, but it's so iconic. So yeah, you know, Justin uh, came along after the event, but he's well prepped um, and he knew what he was going into. Um, so much so that when he mastered the record, he prepared two masters. He prepared a master which he thought was a professional master, um, the master that he would give to, I don't know, a I guess a, you know, a fan of uh, production, maybe just normal produ production. Um, he's quite big into electronic music and things, so I guess if you instruct him to do a professional mastering job, a mixing job, this is what I'd give you, option A. And then he said, oh, I saw I got this other version. I think it might be too extreme to, to listen to. Um, and it was just known as sort of the extreme version. And instantly I actually listened to the first one. I went, I see what you're trying to do, Justin, but um, the first option isn't actually what we brought you into this project for. Um, we're actually keen to hear the other option, you know, and uh, I know maybe, you know, he didn't, he, he sort of, he wasn't sure whether it was the right thing to do because it was everything he's not meant to do with production and everything <laughs> right. that he's not been trained for. But that's the beauty of it because if you look at Street Cleaner, well, it was, you know, it was 1989 from, from memory, I think. So that record, he didn't know how to produce. He didn't know all these techniques. He just, you know, really made the most extreme sounding industrial record that he could make. Um, and that's very much what we do with Envy. So I think the that that was where we saw sort of a, you know a similar mindset with us and what we do and what Justin does. 
Um, yeah, you know, it was just it was just sort of him, I, I guess, sort of uh, bringing raw authenticity to the table. Exactly what we did with you know with with Maury's. It's just a lot more fitting um, than I guess. It's a lot more fitting for for what Dragged into Sunlight is um, over a polished professional production. Um, you know, I'm not saying we're not a polished professional band or whichever. You know, we can do that. But what we're about is raw energy and genuine intensity, um, integrity. You know, sort of looking, you know, sort of looking straight at something and really sort of, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, just creating creating something that's uh, very pure, very pure. I think that's the word. And when Justin came with that master that he was actually ashamed to show people, you know, he didn't want to, it was like a secret. It was like, I've been keeping this other master, you know, in the cupboard sort of, you know, for my own private listening <laughs> sessions. When he sort of brought that, we were thinking, well, this is perfect. You know, he has got it. He knows what he was expected to do. He just didn't actually, you know, he didn't think that was acceptable. So over that, we're sort of like, well, Justin is our, our type of person. You know, he's a like-minded individual. He's someone who, you know, he got the in instruction to work on the record, enjoyed working on it, um, but really pushed his own boundaries. you go momentarily but I just wanted to talk to you just for a moment about serial killers yeah. for me uh, so throughout each album uh, you guys have used a lot of samples from s serial killers yeah. uh, whether they're speaking philosophically or they're just matter-of-factly going through their process yeah. all that kind of thing and I've always seen the inclusion of these s samples as examples of you know the savagery of the human that humans are capable and kind of bolstering why the human race should be despised the hatred for mankind for example is that the intent of their use or what's the band's viewpoint on i mean on it's, it's uh, i think there are there are there's a couple of a couple of reasons a couple of underlying reasons so the first i think is is just um a, an affiliation with true crime and uh, past experience so various members are sort of you know have had, I guess experience with true crime um, myself I actually worked on Texas Death Row in 2006 yeah right so I, I met a lot of uh, killers um, and you know some serial killers others not serial killers you know there's definitions you know serial killer is a definition um, and and that's important because you know Dragged to Sunlight has never used a, a killer which is a soul killer you know it's, it's always been a serial killer um it's never been a sensation killing or anything like that it's, it's a serial killer where it's multiple i mean it's over a um it's not even a, a spree killer you know it's over a, a period of time um so i guess the you know the affiliation with true crime is something which uh, sort of the, the reason i i sort of like looking and, and sort of reading about serial killers and you know i guess an interest in it so far as what purpose it serves in the music I think there's a couple of reasons again. So I think the tone is very important. The tone of someone's voice is very important. Um, and I'll go through hours and hours and hours of footage to make sure that tone of, of what they're saying fits the music and, and makes it feel like it counts. I don't ever want to use a sample which is a non-sample. Um, I'll only ever use samples where it's, uh, I guess, just 
fits perfectly to the point we've looked for samples for 16, 17 hours for a five second sample. Um, but it sounded perfect once it's locked in. So there's that obsession with sort of the audio part of it. As for the substance of what they're, what they're saying, um, for me, that's, that, that is humanity. It has a beautiful side. You know, charitable causes, that's humanity. Serial killing, that is humanity. Um, I guess it's the dark side of the moon or whichever, you know, it's the, it's the other side of the coin. And I think for, for you know, people, people live in, in the shadows, you know, they, they sort of live in, a, live in a shell. You know, they don't, they don't want to know that these people exist. I mean, these people, many of them are still alive during the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. This was, you know, it was, it was something people did. You know, you, you don't, they don't get as much publicity nowadays. They don't have many interviews, but Charles Manson essentially was, was one of the biggest celebrities in the world. Um, you know, everyone knew he's a household name um, from, from sort of the, you know, the act he undertook. And I think in the same note, if they are a household name and they've got this notoriety, um, you know, they're obviously saying or doing something which is, you know, getting them that notoriety. Um, I think as a bare minimum, you should sort of give it a bit of time and see whether what they have to say is interesting. Um, and I find more often than not, it is, you know. Um, you, you know, you're not, you're not having dinner with these people. Um, you're listening to what they say. You don't have to agree with everything they say. Um, a lot of people, you know, a lot of Dragon Sunlight fans do listen. You know, they sort of agree with what they're, what they're hearing. When they sort of hear, hear a, a serial killer describe crimes or describe motivation or something like that, a lot of Dragon Sunlight fans think, you know, that is, that's cool to listen to. You know, I, I enjoyed that. You know, it's sort of very fitting. It made the music sort of amplified the music, amplified the feelings. But equally, you know, you don't, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to agree with everything you hear. So um, some people might just take away, well, you know, that was interesting. I don't agree with it. Um, I'll look up who 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 it was, um, read a bit of background about them. Um, so that sort of crosses then over into the true crime aspect. And and you know, regardless of the reasons, sort of their uh, their interest in it, you know, as a fan of a fan of Dragon Sunlight, if it's because of the. Um, you know, because of some people like it because of the audio quality, some people like it because of the message, some people like it because of the true crime. And um, I think those those sort of three aspects are, uh, are what you know what motivates us. You know, that's the reason we include them for those three aspects. Normally, you know, I, I can't say on that third one whether you know you agree with what is being said or not. Um, personally, I can't say whether I agree with <laughs> everything that's been said or not. It makes me think in the same way, um, and every night. Um, you know, we if, if we play Boiled Angel, for example, every night I will hear, you know, different ocean, it's a different world. Every night the words are, are you know, in my head, you know, and that's been for, for 10 years and I still think about it, you know. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I guess my uh, my affiliation with true crime as a, with the new, new material has just continued, you know, and, and studying more and more and learning more and getting more and more obscure as well because, uh, you know, I think when I, I probably first started um, including serial killer samples in, in our work, um, I'd, I'd probably been going back maybe six years of true crime or something like that, six to eight years, and by this point, you know, I've been studying and working with criminals um, for 18 years, you know. Um, so you sort of learn a lot about them, I guess, and you, you sort of uh, learn about sort of, uh, that's, it's quite a niche, a niche really, and uh, especially when it comes down to serial killing. So you sort of go back through the history books and you go all the way back to you know, 60s, 20s, and you just read about the evolution of serial killing over, over sort of a period of 100 years. Um, and that is, you know, it's interesting, interesting subject matter. 
uh, I, I don't think favorite is the right, right word to use, but do you, is there a serial killer that you find more interesting than others, perhaps? Yeah, probably. Um, I think probably one of the most interesting ones for me um, is probably Dion Terres, who, who um, or spelled T-I-E-R-R-E-S, I think. Um, and he was a, a shooter from the 90s, one of the first shooters in a public space, you know, to sort of open fire and, you know, take take 20 to 30 people or so out. Um, I think he, he was, he was un, under 10 he killed in, in, uh, in the end. But um, I think part of the interest, part of my, my interest in it is that it was quite early on. So it was before Columbine. It was before, you know, sort of... I guess killings where it was there were high school shootings and things. Um, so people weren't actually sure they weren't sure what it was. Is it a serial killing? Is it an impulse killing? Is it a, you know sort of what is it? The guys just walked into an open space and unloaded you know um, you know two hundred rounds or whichever. Um, so he walked into a McDonald's one day. No one really understood why. Um, so it wasn't like Columbine. There was no history of mental health. No history of you know, any sign that he was going to do it. Um, he had an argument with uh, a manager um, where he used to work there or, or something like that. He had sort of a history with them, with a, someone who worked there, I think. Um, and one day just decided to go in and, and shoot the whole place up. Um, and sort of the, there's a series of interviews that he did with himself in the run-up to it. Um, and that's probably the most interesting interesting part. He, you know, his early days, so there's no technology. Well, not, not great technology. He had a camcorder. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I studied Dion Terrace's crimes for years. Um, sort of tried to find the video recordings of, of where he recorded these interviews with himself in the mirror. So he had a camcorder and he would point at the mirror and he talked to himself about what he was going to do. He talks about, you know, sort of um, his intentions, obviously killing everyone, but why he's, he's doing it. There isn't really any substantive reason to the why, it's just because I hate everyone. And to see that come from a guy, you know, you look at pictures of a guy, he didn't look like a serial killer, he doesn't look like someone who can, you know, wipe out an entire restaurant. So I think his motivations in this sort of, you know, part by part um, installments, because the clips are very difficult to find, you know, to the point you just can't find them anywhere. They're almost impossible to find on the internet um, or in libraries or even in, you know, if you write to, write to sort of the authorities to try and get the tapes released, they're impossible to get, it seems. So over the course of probably about nine years, I gathered these little clips, um, tried to sort of create some sort of context or at least create, a, you know, sort of some sort of understanding. I guess I was studying the guy. Um, and one of the rarest ones of those clips actually I've included um, in the new material. Oh, wow. But it's the, it's the one where I think, you know, after years of searching, um, I found that one. Um, and it's uh, sort of a, about sort of 40 seconds of him talking. Um, and I think it, it really sort of, um, you know, it's, it's probably the substance of his crime, you know, in, in that sort of, it's like a penny dropping for him at the same time. It's probably one of the last ones he did, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, that, that guy, you know, he's, he infatuates me, you know, he's pretty interesting. Everybody I meet, all my relatives, I've fantasized thousands, millions of times about killing them. It's better this way, because if I wasn't gonna do this now, I would have ended up being a, one of the worst serial killers in this country's history, without a doubt. Ted Bundy had all these personalities in, in one one sort of body, and there's a few of them like that. Um, the likes of Richard Kuklinski had the same thing. Arthur Shawcross had the same thing. They have this thing where it's you know two two sides of the coin, and um, 
you know, Arthur Shawcross was a granddad, Dennis Rader was a granddad, you know, um, they have, uh, you know, just these normal family lives. And then on the other side of the coin, just like Ted Boyne, Bundy, you know, Ted Bundy had a, a, a fiance girlfriend who knew nothing about what he was doing on the side. And that is just, um, you know, that takes some getting your head around how during the day he's a normal guy post 7 p.m. between the hours of 7 and 10 or whichever he's, you know, before he saw his girlfriend, he was obviously out doing what he was doing. Uh, how you explain that and get your head around it, the same person, you know, a family meal two hours early and then he's intentionally patrolling the streets trying to cut someone up. Um, so the, those two dichotomies between the likes of um, Arthur Shawcross, Richard Kuklinski, Ted Bundy, um, that's what really interests me. So there's a couple of, I, I'd probably say when you ask sort of which is my favorite um, serial killer. Um, it's probably one of those three. I don't think we've used a lot of Arthur Shawcross. We've, we've never managed to include him on a, on a record, but um, we've used Richard, Richard Kuklinski, we've used Ted Bundy. Um, and for the new stuff, Dion Teres, um, because I spent so long studying his works. Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Uh, I look forward to a new album from you guys because it's been a while. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you for being so generous with your time. Uh, T from Draft Into Satellite, thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Gary.